This is Dr. Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, making your world better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All of these reasons combined led me to start this show. And it's my hope that through this series, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear from effective leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. As a nonprofit leader, you eventually realize you can't do everything yourself, but hiring is complicated. Volunteers have other demands on their time. And what if you only need part-time help anyway? Well, Belay, an innovative staffing solution, has successfully matched thousands of organizations with part-time virtual assistants, bookkeepers, and social media strategists. Let Belay help you become a more effective and successful nonprofit leader, making a positive impact in the community by helping you juggle less and accomplish more. Just go to Belay, B-E-L-A-Y solutions.com slash nonprofit leadership. Well, every one of you has heard of Google, but how many of you know that Google has a very robust and world-impacting philanthropic arm, aptly named Google.org, that impacts millions of people around the world every year? Well, my guest today is Alex Diaz. He is the head of crisis response and humanitarian aid for Google.org. In this episode, I think you'll be impressed and perhaps even surprised by just how much Google is doing around the globe to impact some of the biggest challenges we face including, of course, the COVID crisis we are now in. Enjoy today's show. Alex, thanks so much for being on the show today. No, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you on the show today because I have a feeling that while everyone knows Google by name, many of my listeners may have no idea all of the social impact that Google's philanthropic arm, Google.org, is doing around the globe. Could you start out by sharing just a bit about your role at Google and all that Google is doing on the philanthropic side of things? Yeah, happy to. My, my name is Alex Diaz. I'm the, uh, the head of crisis response and humanitarian aid at Google.org, uh, Google's philanthropic arm. Uh, in my role, I manage Google.org's response to global crises. We work to provide funding and volunteers to innovative nonprofits that are on the front lines. Um, one thing I also love that, uh, on the volunteering front is I, I help manage the Google.org crisis connectivity program, uh, which works with nonprofit partners in disaster-affected places to reestablish emergency connectivity for survivors and responders in critical locations. We actually send people into the field to install uh, Wi-Fi in places like shelters and police stations and schools, um, and increasingly over time as, uh, as information as they become critical, that's, that's something that we'd like to do. Um, and at Google.org in general, just to give a little bit of a, you know, two seconds there, we, we really work to connect innovative nonprofits with all of Google's resources to, to solve complex human, human challenges um, and ensure everyone has access to the digital economy. Um, we know that the same technology that makes our lives easier every day can also help solve some of the world's largest problems. And, you know, we also know that the, the best answers often come from those that are closest to the problem. 
I love that. Well, and the stated mission of Google.org is to bring the best of Google to help solve some of humanity's biggest challenges. And that's combining funding, innovation, technical expertise to support underserved communities and provide opportunity for everyone. Again, you've got a huge footprint as a company, um, and you're trying to, again, to just spread that out to these big challenges. You've already mentioned a few. Um, so talk a bit more about that. Again, maybe give a couple of examples of things you're doing currently right now uh, around the globe to really make that difference of bringing all the best of Google to the, the world's biggest problems. Yeah, I can do a couple of different things. One, I'll just talk about historically. I think when it comes to crisis, uh, specifically to humanitarian crises and natural disasters, we've donated over... Uh, $45 million uh, across the globe to humanitarian crises just since 2016. Um, and we've also sent 50 skilled, over 50 skilled volunteers, Googlers to more than a dozen disaster events through our crisis connectivity program. But we, it, it wouldn't be a, a talk about crisis response if we're not acknowledging the crisis of the day, which is COVID-19. Uh, there was over 150 million, you know, COVID cases worldwide and sadly, you know, through over 3 million deaths. Our top priority to date has been to get support to those on the front line who are battling the disease as well as providing, you know, our, our best asset oftentimes is our people. Um, so providing that data science support to those that are doing disease tracking. Uh, one project that, that, that I love that, that I was engaged in from a very early start was supporting a, a consortium of researchers now called Global.Health. Uh, there are a group of researchers from Boston Children's Hospital, uh, Northeastern, University of Oxford, Johns Hopkins, Wa University of Washington, Georgetown, others. Um, and what they were doing, and, and honestly, they, you know, I went to the school with the, one of the epidemiologists and he reached out and said, hey, you know, are y'all doing anything in, co uh, in response to COVID? And this was uh, February, March of last year. Uh, and he said, you know, we're, we're working on creating a, a, a database, a spreadsheet at, at that point of uh, case level uh, data on COVID-19. So get really granular on uh, on who, what, and where. And that type of information is super helpful for epidemiologists and public health ministries to track where is the disease going to go to next. Um, and that's the real differentiation. At the time, you know, what we really had was aggregate case counts. Like at one moment, what's the caseload in a specific area, which is good to know in terms of just like what the level of the disease burden is. But it's not that helpful in figuring out where is it going to go next? How do we allocate the resources to really, you know, start start to bend that curve? And when we are trying to put new policies in place uh, to limit the disease incidents, how do we know that it's working? And th this team was working to do that. Um, but very quickly, their infrastructure was becoming overburdened as the pandemic started to kick off. So we issued, a, you know, a million and a half in grants. Uh, but we also sent a team of, you know, Google.org fellows. Uh, where they worked with this, with this group of researchers for, for six months full time pro bono. So we sent a team of engineers, product managers, UX researchers to understand what the needs were, where they were, and then start to actually build this infrastructure. And, uh, thankfully the, the platform is now live and being used to track the spread of the variant, uh, which of course we, we know is, 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 you know, causing some havoc right now. So. Hopefully that this, this platform is just a contribution to the digital public health infrastructure that's needed to help, you know, get on the other side of this pandemic, but also be helpful for, for future pandemics and future epidemics. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because you are doing things all over the world. I'm just curious, um, you know, right recently, right now, it seems like from all the reports I've read anyway, the biggest country uh, that's being hit really diff hard right now is India. They're just getting hammered right now by kind of a new wave of COVID. Are you involved in India on the ground level? And if so, maybe talk about that a bit, what you're doing there. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think starting uh, late last year, um, I mean, and, and just so you know, in, in 2020, we uh, we as a team committed $100 million and 50,000 pro bono hours to support COVID relief across a, a range of issue areas. And starting late last year, you know, I and a couple of other folks started to put our heads together on like, what's the next frontier? Um, one avenue being vaccines, and then what about subsequent waves? of infection in countries like India and Brazil and elsewhere. And the answer is, yeah, we're working on both fronts. Um, earlier this year in January and then more recently in a couple of weeks, we, we, we announced uh, our commitment to vaccine equity because um, uh, unsurprisingly, sadly, uh, you know, the trends that you'd expect in terms of you know, who's been bearing the brunt of COVID in the United States, it's rural populations, it's communities of color. Um, and not surprisingly, those same populations are the ones that are lacking in access to the vaccine. Uh, and then you zoom out globally, and there's a, just a huge disparity in terms of, of wealth, uh, in terms of like wealthier countries having, I think there's a, you know, 80% plus of, of, of the of vaccines are, are really focused on the top 10 wealthiest countries. Um, and there's a huge disparity in terms of uh, access to vaccines in low and middle income countries. So we wanted to see what can we do to help um, with our funding and with our technical expertise. And uh, we, we, made a, we made a $5 million commitment. We exceeded that commitment already um, to support vaccine equity. So in the United States, uh, one thing that we did, or we, we were supporting organizations like the CDC Foundation, Partners in Health, Team Rubicon, Stop the Spread. And one thing that we wanted to really realize and understand was like there's a, you know, gaps in access, and that means access to the vaccine itself, access to information about the vaccine that's like linguistically and culturally relevant, but also gaps in trust, you know, lingering vaccine hesitancy. So we wanted to examine where is the trust that these communities that are hardest hit, where, where do they, who, whom do they trust? Um, and the answer across the board was their local doctor, the local community leaders. So we said our strategy was how do we work with them? How do we empower them? And these folks, you know, are strapped for resources or strapped for time. So can we work through partners to provide that flex capacity to meet communities where they are, to address those concerns with empathy, and then hopefully move them to be a little bit more vaccine confident so that once the vaccine becomes available to them, they go and get their shot. To address your question specifically, in India, yeah, in Monday of this week or Sunday, uh, in Monday of this week, we, we announced that we are, we are stepping up to support with additional funding in India. So we committed, uh, over $2.5 million to organizations like UNICEF and Give India, uh, to do a couple different things. And the, the strategy that we like to employ is to be comprehensive. We want to make sure that we're addressing primary needs and primary effects of COVID. So the medical, acute medical needs. So, working with UNICEF to procure oxygen concentrators and PPE and hygiene kits that can really try and minimize the acute crisis in India, but also working with Give India, who are also doing some of that, but also providing emergency cash to deal with secondary effects. So people that may have lost a job or lost a loved one, uh, unfortunately, to the disease or are suffering hunger, um, giving them cash to help them make it through to the next day. Um, and working to do similar things in, in other countries. And as, as the disease continues to spread, we'll continue to monitor and respond accordingly uh, should the need be there and, and, and be in line with our, our strategy to respond. Yeah, interesting. So it sounds like the majority of the money that you're sending right now, anyway, currently is going to two primary NGOs. Is that correct? Or are you also giving it directly to the government of India? Or how does that work exactly? 
Yeah, so Google.org is limited in that we can only support nonprofit organizations. So we cannot provide funding to government entities, um, but our partners are, are, multi, are, are multitudinous. So we are supporting UNICEF, we are supporting Give India in India, but our employees uh, opened up a campaign. They're supporting organizations like Kunj, the United Way, uh, Charities Aid Foundation. So there's a, there's a there's a broad array of folks that we're supporting, and then we're also engaging and consulting with our peers and hoping that others you know join us. Uh, you know, there's only so much that we can do, but if we all you know chip in our little bit, that's that's really going to be helpful. And just been heartened by the outpouring of support that we've seen from other companies and, and other foundations, and we're happy to have played our part. Well, I'm impressed. $2.5 million. That's a lot of money. Uh, way to go. You know, an interesting, just a very micro level in comparison to what you've been talking about, just the organization and, and the community I live in here in Park City, Utah, in a two-county region. You're absolutely right when it comes to equity. I mean, unfortunately, on the COVID side, uh, disproportionately hit by COVID was our Latinx community. Um, and then flip side is also true. Disproportionately often access to the vaccine has been very difficult. And it's been heartening to see even our community really make an effort to make sure all of those, particularly those who are most vulnerable, have access to the vaccine. And you're extending that to make sure that it happens across the world. So very impressive. Great work on that. Um, and now I want to talk more like nonprofit, you know, related questions. And when it comes to intended impact, you know, every nonprofit, uh, whether it's explicit or implicit, has this intended impact they're trying to seek to make in their community and their world. Um, talk about some of the primary areas of focused impact that Google.org is concentrating on right now. Maybe not just the COVID effort, obviously that's a big one, but maybe besides that and maybe even before COVID, what were some of those primary areas and that intended impact that you're trying to make around the world? Yeah, I'd say the, the, it's a great question. The, the North Star for, for our work across the board at .org is impact, but especially impact in support and benefit of the most vulnerable. So equity really cuts across all of our portfolios, whether that's crisis or our economic opportunity work. Um, and a, a few years ago, when I when I came to, to take on the, the crisis portfolio, uh, I wanted to make sure that the impact that uh, we stated that we wanted to have was, was bearing true in the actual data uh, in terms of who we're supporting and how we were supporting. And um, as I got a little bit more up to speed on the space, especially on funding patterns, uh, one thing that became apparent uh, was, and that I learned, was that a, uh, a, a huge chunk of funding in the humanitarian cycle um, happens in that immediate relief window. A crisis hits and donations pour and flood in. Uh, but the way I look at crisis response is along that disaster cycle from way in advance to preparedness and, and mitigation and, and resilience to immediate relief and then through long-term recovery. And I think with uh, with, with climate change worsening, we need to do more across that disaster cycle, um, and increasingly more in advance. And then if, uh, with, you know, disasters are becoming more frequent and stronger, increasingly also a lot more on the long-term recovery front that then feeds back into the future preparedness and resilience. Um, and when I looked at how we were doing our funding, uh, in, in our, our activations, we were, we were almost entirely reactive. We wait for a crisis to happen. We would decide whether we're going to respond. Um, it would take us a couple of days to figure out who's doing what. And then by that point, um, a lot of the momentum to raise funds uh, were would have been lost. But also, when we look back at who we were supporting, a lot of the folks were just doing that immediate relief work, which, don't get me wrong, is critical. It's important. It saves lives uh, and livelihoods. But we wanted to do our part to you know, use our voice and use our funding 
to signal that there could be an improved way to do this, at least as diversified across that cycle. So we uh, we struck a partnership with a fantastic organization called the Center for Disaster Philanthropy. Um, and in our work with them, what we state explicitly is, that, is, you know, when a crisis hits and we've decided that we respond, first of all, let's park money with you. Um, so we don't have to go through the process of losing hours or a day to get funds transferred. So funds are already parked there. Um, so that when we say, hey, let's respond to this crisis, they can issue the funds immediately if needed. So a crisis hits, we say, hey, we're going to respond. They do their analysis on what the funding needs are and where, where how much, how many funds have been raised for in, in, from the broader space. Um, and if in their assessment, uh, they, they, they conclude that immediate relief is covered, they'll hold on to the funds for a couple months, three months, six months, nine months later, because we know communities are going to still be hurting and needing cash and needing assistance. Um, and then we'll work to disperse those funds later on down down the timeline. And oftentimes those organizations are more local community-based organizations that are doing comprehensive support um, for the communities and have the trusted communities and will be there for the long haul. And those are often organizations that don't get funding when a crisis happens. So we wanted to do that just to make sure that um, we were at least diversifying our funds across that cycle and helping to stand up with communities throughout the, the, the timeline of a disaster. Very interesting. A couple of questions follow up on that. Were your gifts primarily unrestricted gifts? In other words, just an unrestricted uh, gift when you gave it to them to park it there. And then it sounds like when you gave it to this one organization, it filtered into multiple NGOs beyond them. Am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, unrestricted um, is, is, is the name of the game for us um, oftentimes. And I'll even go one step further. So the answer to both your questions is, yeah, you know, unrestricted. And then, you know, they'll subgrant that to, to a much broader group of folks that, that we potentially probably could have ever found on our own and leaning into their expertise. Right. They, they have, you know, you know, deep connections with a lot of uh, organizations that work in the space. Uh, but even further, to, uh, one, one thing that I'd like to push and something that Google.org has been working on for, for some time is uh, direct cash transfers as an intervention itself. Um, so even before I was on the team, uh, they, they asked the question, you know, should just giving people cash be a preferable intervention uh, when compared to traditional post-crisis aid? Um, so they, uh, the, the, the team ran a, a study essentially with a nonprofit partner that we've worked with for, for a long time called Give Directly and a, uh, and USAID, USAID. Um, and we said, USAID, you know, what, uh, you know, let's measure the impacts of, let's say, a nutrition program that you're running and what things you want to maximize with this nutrition program. Let's quantify how much that nutrition program costs. And let's give the cash equivalent to another group of folks. And then let's do the similar thing. Let's give the cash equivalent plus a little bit more cash to a third group of folks. And importantly, let's measure the impacts on what you care about from nutrition per program perspective. Return, the birth weight, uh, you know, whatever the metrics were that were important for nutrition programs. And then also measure the things that you measure from a cash program, like economics. So assets, consumption, et cetera, you know, or, or a level of debt. And what we found surprisingly was that the cash and cash plus groups performed just as just as good or even better than nutrition programs, uh, which begs the question, why not just give cash? And that's not to say that cash is a panacea, it's not a cure-all, but can we be asking ourselves the question, is giving cash better, however you want to define better, than the alternative in, in, in intervention that you're trying to propose? 
And the answer can be yes, and the answer could be no in some cases. Like if you're trying to, you know, help with malaria, the most cost-effective way is just provide malaria nuts. It's not to give cash. Um, but for some interventions, um, giving cash is the fastest way. It's, it acknowledges the agency and the human dignity of people to make their own decisions. It supports local economy. So assuming the supply is latent and is there, um, and uh, what you're doing is providing a demand shock so people can use the cash to stimulate the local economy instead of, you know, you providing aid from another place and you're stimulating the economy elsewhere when really that that, that, that local economy that's about a crisis needs that aid. You know, that's really interesting. You bring up an intriguing point. So historically, people, donors, don't love the idea of giving cash. And so let me clarify on a couple of things. Number one, have you, you give these cash gifts directly to the recipients. Is that correct? Or does it go directly to the nonprofits who then in turn give the cash out to recipients? Yeah, we give the cash to give directly and then we trust them and work with them um, to, for them to distribute the cash. All of our work is through nonprofits. Google.org is not interacting directly with any individual and recipients. Yeah. That's my guess. Okay. So then on another side, because I've had conversations with other guests before. So when it comes to cash gifts, right, sometimes it's hard to track where that goes. And so say you like my organization, the nonprofit that I lead, we always get audited every year and they want to know paper trail. Where did you give this money to various people for all the things you do? How do you, do you know how those nonprofits track those gifts in turn offhand? Uh, because I think when donors hear cash gifts, their concern right away is like, wait, how can you track where it really goes? How do you know that they used it for the intended purpose? Yeah, that's where comprehensive measurement evaluation comes in. Um, and importantly, before, you know, even instituting a cash program, having effective fraud prevention uh, technology, technological solutions in place. And we make sure that we do that due diligence before we move forward with any project, because what we don't want if we're working in a specific area is hands, money to get into the hands of the wrong people or the unintended people. Um, and then having rigorous post-intervention uh, evaluation on you know, with household surveys, or if you're giving funds via uh, a phone, like mobile money transfers, into interacting with them via the phone to do these surveys on, hey, what, you know, what did you use the, the funds with? Uh, what did you use the funds for, excuse me? Um, and what you find is that, you know, because another concern that you often hear in the space is, well, you know, these folks are going to use the money for vice goods. They're going to buy alcohol or tobacco. And the data doesn't bear it out. You know, overwhelmingly, folks are using the funds to, you know, purchase necessities, food, water, clothing, uh, shelter. Uh, if a hurricane hits and a tree unfortunately falls on someone's car uh, and they can't get to work because their car got hurt, they can use the cash to repair their car and then get to work. Because what you don't want is, you know, work to be disrupted, people to not get a paycheck. They can't pay their rent. They get evicted. And then that cycle just continues and the crisis just multiplies and magnifies. Cash can be a way, it's just like a, like a natural shock absorber to help uh, reduce the inequities that, that often occur after crises. We'll be right back. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. If this is your first time listening to us, I wanted to make sure you're aware of a whole group of other episodes with fascinating guests that I previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. There you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country, including some from other countries, all trying to make their world better. So when you go to our website, you can also subscribe to my monthly leadership update in order to get more content, ask me questions, and discover additional information. Just look for the subscribe button on the right-hand side of the webpage. 
Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. You know, and I love the fact that you're honoring the agency and the dignity of the people that you're serving. I think that's a wonderful thing. It's a great value. I very much resonate with that. Okay, well, let's move on a little bit, a slightly different topic. Obviously, Google is a huge company. Um, and there's been, in the last couple of years in particular, there's been this real large increase in uh, multinational companies, large corporations in the U.S. in particular, that are having what we would call the philanthropic arm to their business, right? A social impact that's part and parcel of their company, and they will hire a social impact director, for example. There's even B Corps that are being formed now that are directly uh, seeking to make a difference in the world and, and not have your traditional, you know, uh, money is the bottom line as your impact, but more social change and social impact as being the driving force for a B Corp and or these social impact arms of large businesses. So talk to me about that a little bit, because why it's come up with other guests I've had on the show is now there's a, maybe it's crowding the nonprofit space, if you will, right? With more companies that have lots of capital, they have a, a big uh, footprint in the world, and now they're kind of, in a sense, being able to provide what a nonprofit would otherwise do. Talk about how you work into that space, because what I hear you already saying is you're working with nonprofits, both internationally, locally, and, and regionally, uh, as opposed to trying to replace nonprofits. Do you fear that companies like Google and others, the more they do social impact? Do you think that will ever eclipse the work of other nonprofits or do you see it as a collaborative effort? I, I, I see it as a collaborative effort and I hope that the work that, that companies are doing does not eclipse. I think the role that nonprofits play is, are, is critical um, and there's a reason why they exist and uh, the, the way that I view it is you know, we know that the best answers often come closest from those that are closest to the problem and that's often from nonprofits that are on the front lines. That's why we have that baked into our DNA and that's why we look for these nonprofit innovators that, that understand the needs of marginalized communities and vulnerable populations here and around the world. And, you know, these are innovators are the ones that are creating new and unexpected solutions. But effective partnerships are key, you know, so we, we want to make sure that we're leveraging respective assets and skill sets. Everyone has something to, to, that they can bring to bear uh, to help out. And for us, that's often, you know, that's, that's our funding for sure, but often our, our technical expertise. But it's often it's always. Uh, excuse me, always in service of the mission of a nonprofit. It's not us dictating to a nonprofit, hey, we should be doing this or we want to be doing this. It's, hey, nonprofit, you know, what, what goals do you have? What's, what you're, what are you trying to achieve? What's the next level of innovation that you're trying to bring to bear in your work? And how can we help? We just want to be helpful in that space. Well, I love that, the spirit of that. So maybe you could paint, what would be the ideal relationship between, say, companies like your own and nonprofit organizations in terms of collaboration, mutual sport, in particular when it comes to these big, complex issues such as world hunger, the pandemic currently, social justice, inequality? What's that perfect ideal relationship look like from Google's point of view? That's a great question. First of all, I'd say uh, there, the problem needs to be scoped out. Uh, so I'd say if we're moving into a new space, oftentimes what, what, what we receive is a nonprofit saying, hey, you know, we could really use artificial intelligence or technology to solve this thing. And the question I often go back to them with is, is that really, is that a solution in search of a problem or do you actually have a discrete problem that you're trying to address? Because let's start from problems and use cases and then let's work to see what solutions or what technologies can, can, be, can be leveraged in that space and what other partners might be needed. 
So, for example, one project that I'm that I'm really proud of that's kicking off. Um, it's already being kicked off, but but some results are starting to trickle in. Uh, is again, and I keep using Give directly. They're they're an awesome organization, but they came to us to, with an interesting problem space last year where they said, you know. Given COVID, uh, we cannot have a physical on the ground presence in many places. We still want, there's, you know, increasing and probably the most need we've ever had to face in the world. Um, so how can we remotely and at scale administer uh, aid programs in partnership with government? So they were working with the government of Togo and they brought in a researcher from, uh, University of California at Berkeley. Uh, this professor named Josh Blumenstock, who had been, you know, researching and, and, and publishing for, for years on novel uses of data sets and machine learning technologies that can help in administering aid programs. So one, uh, one idea that they had, and this is again in, in, in partnership with the Togolese government was, can we use telecommunications data, metadata, so, you know, aggregated and, 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 you know, privacy preserving? And couple that with government survey data on poverty to be able to identify and target who might be eligible for a social protection program. Um, and the government said, you know what, like our, our means to do this might be limited, uh, but let's try it. Let's see what the, what the data will, will show. And surprisingly, uh, there's two metrics that are important when you're, when you're testing the, the efficacy of an algorithm. It's precision and it's recall. Precision basically says, of the things that you're looking to find, how accurate at you, are you at finding what you need to find? And then on recall, it's how good are you at finding all the things potentially that you're trying to find out of all the things that exist? And oftentimes those things are a trade-off. So if you're having an algorithm that's high in precision, you're going to have low recall and vice versa. With the, with the system that they put together, uh, you, they actually improve both precision and recall. That mostly means that the status quo uh, way to do that was just not the greatest. But the fact that you're able to use this new data set, do that at the scale of a country and completely remotely to help provide aid at the, at the scale of 10 million people, that's, that's awesome. That's a great use of technology. That's a great example, actually. I'm impressed with that. Um, and, you know, as I think about and learn about all the work that Google.org is doing, I was really impressed. And you already mentioned it earlier, but not only the dollar amounts that you're giving, but the time amounts that you're allocating, pro bono work that you're offering through your staff and other people. Maybe give us an example of how this works with your team and Google employees. For example, for my listeners, like how's a program selected? Um, who decides and how's the budget allocated? Yeah, it's a great question. The, despite the unique challenges of volunteering remotely over the last year, we, we actually saw the largest participation in the Google.org fellowship program yet. I think we've, we've, we've sent something on the order of like 157 Googlers around the world donating a cumulative, I believe, 121,000 pro bono hours. That's 3,025 work weeks uh, through these fellowship programs. These are full-time Googlers that we have to convince their managers, hey, please allow us to borrow your awesome employee uh, for this for this, for this this project. Um, and uh, when we're initiating grants and we're working uh, you know, through that grant process, one question that we often ask our, our grantees or prospective grantees is, do you have a technical need? Um, and many, many times they'll say, yeah, so we, you know, we will, we'll have to say no to a chunk of folks that, you know, we can't provide that full fellowship, but potentially we could provide, you know, more part-time volunteering to fill the need. 
Um, but when you decide, hey, this is, you know, uh, an interesting use of our employees' time and can use a full team of Googlers, sometimes the needs that nonprofits have can just use one or two or a handful of Googlers in a part-time capacity and it'll meet their needs. But some projects will say, hey, we actually could use a full team of folks. So an example um, from last year that, that I'm excited about that's hopefully going to launch next month is, um, is a, a collaboration that we have with the Morehouse School of Medicine, uh, where they came to us uh, in, around the summertime of last year and said, you know, the, the, the disparities of COVID-19 um, when it, with respect to communities of color is stark, but the data that exist are, are you know, inconsistent or missing. And we would like to move forward and create something um, that can improve the status quo of, uh, of, of health equity data in this country. Um, so we said, great, we're on board. We, we issued a grant and we sent a team of Googlers to build a health equity tracker. And I'm, the, the health equity tracker is on track to, to launch next, uh, next month, but it includes not just, you know, breakdowns at a county level of, you know, COVID case and death across the country, but includes things like, you know, social and political determinants of health. Um, that could also be drivers and oftentimes are drivers of health inequity in a country. And importantly, what this does is, is it's, it's bringing together data sets that probably are in silos and are, are, are not connected, but to come to life. And what you need is this data to power the argument that, you know, there is an inequitable state that we are in right now. We kind of have a sense of it from what we see and what we read in the papers. But the data is so inconsistent. We're trying to change that. We want to make sure that that data is more consistent so that we can actually have these arguments more concretely and say, in these countries or in these counties or in these states, this is what we're seeing. And then these are potential policy solutions that are working in other states to help, you know, have a more equitable future uh, for when it comes to health outcomes in this country. One last question, it's related to what you've already kind of shared, but maybe you can share a little bit more on this. With you on the front lines of both the COVID crisis, but other things around the world, what are some of the trends you're seeing, both in the U.S. and globally, when it comes to how we're doing as a country and a world moving through this crisis? Are there any surprises you're currently seeing or any other things that have kind of taken you by surprise? Yeah, unfortunately and, and, and sadly, not surprisingly, the trend here and abroad is inequity. Uh, there are disparities along predictable lines and who's contracting and dying from the disease. And, you know, the, as I said earlier, those same communities are the ones that lack access to the solution, you know, safe and effective vaccines. The world's poor, communities of color, rural populations are bearing the brunt of COVID. Uh, and this is one of the primary reasons why we made our vaccine equity commitment. And, and we hope others do join us on that. And, uh, and there's no shortage of need. You know, and it will take all of us working together to get on the other side of this virus. That said, I'm, I'm generally an optimistic person. And yet, even still, I'm surprised at the resilience and generosity of people, including our employees, but around the world. You know, despite living through the largest crisis of our generation, people are finding ways to connect, cope, and persevere. You know, millions, if not billions, of ordinary people have really stepped up to do extraordinary things, big and small, from helping deliver food to donating funds to just checking in on vulnerable neighbors. Um, and it's that generosity, that, that cooperation that will see us through this disaster and hopefully bring about a brighter tomorrow. And, and that's really what, what I'm looking forward to. Well, Alex, this has been a fascinating conversation. Again, thanks for sharing all that you're doing. I think for my listeners, they're, they're going to be impressed with all that Google is doing around the world. And, and I'm wondering for those who are listening, how can they find out more about you and Google's work around the world? 
Yeah, you can follow Google.org on Twitter. Uh, it's at Google.org uh, to stay up to date on our latest initiatives and check out Google's official blog, which is called The Keyword, uh, where we highlight our major announcements and spotlight the people behind the amazing organizations we support. Awesome. Well, good. Thanks again, Alex, for being on the show. Thank you, Rob. Happy to be here. Hey, friends, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on both iTunes and Spotify. If you're wondering how to find it, just type in the words Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you, when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast, and your feedback will help expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as possible. You can also find other resources and interviews of past guests on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Again, that website is non nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep making your world better.